Section 7 of An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Robinson at SandraRobinson.com. An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. Section 7. As this Egyptian Sesostris was returning and bringing back many men of the nations whose lands he had subdued, when he came, said the priests, to Daphne in the district of Pelusion on his journey home, his brother, to whom Sesostris had entrusted the charge of Egypt, invited him and with him his sons to a feast, and then he piled the house round with brushwood and set it on fire. And Sesostris, when he discovered this, forthwith took counsel with his wife, for he was bringing with him, they said, his wife also. And she counseled him to lay out upon the pyre two of his sons, which were six in number, and so to make a bridge over the burning mass, and that they passing over their bodies should thus escape. This, they said, Sesostris did, and two of his sons were burnt to death in this manner, but the rest got away safe with their father. Then Sesostris, having returned to Egypt, and having taken vengeance on his brother, employed the multitude which he had brought in of those whose lands he had subdued, as follows. These who were they drew the stones which in the reign of this king were brought to the temple of Hephaestus, being of very good size. And also these were compelled to dig all the channels which are now in Egypt, and thus, having no such purpose, they caused Egypt, which before was all fit for riding and driving, to be no longer fit for this from thenceforth. For from that time forward Egypt, though it is plain land, has become all unfit for riding and driving, and the cause has been these channels, which are many and run in all directions. But the reason why the king cut up the land was this, namely because those of the Egyptians who had their cities not on the river but in the middle of the country, being in want of water when the river went down from them, found their drink brackish because they had it from wells. For this reason Egypt was cut up, and they said that this king distributed the land to all the Egyptians, giving an equal square portion to each man, and from this he made his revenue, having appointed them to pay a certain rent every year. And if the river should take away anything from any man's portion, he would come to the king and declare that which had happened. And the king used to send men to examine and to find out by measurement how much less the piece of land had become, in order that for the future the man might pay less, in proportion to the rent appointed. And I think that thus the art of geometry was found out, and afterwards came into Hellas also. For as touching the sundial, and the gnomon, and the twelve divisions of the day, they were learnt by the Hellenes from the Babylonians. He, moreover, alone of all the Egyptian kings, had rule over Ethiopia, and he left as memorials of himself in front of the temple of Hephaestos two stone statues of thirty cubits each, representing himself and his wife, and others of twenty cubits each, representing his four sons. And long afterwards the priest of Hephaestos refused to permit Darius the Persian to set up a statue of himself in front of them, saying that deeds had not been done by him equal to those which had been done by Sesostris the Egyptian. For Sesostris had subdued other nations besides, not fewer than he, and also the Scythians. But Darius had not been able to conquer the Scythians, Wherefore it was not just that he should set up a statue in front of those which Sesostris had dedicated if he did not surpass him in his deeds, which speech, they say, Darius took in good part. 
Now after Sesostris had brought his life to an end, his son Pharos, they told me, received in succession the kingdom, and he made no warlike expedition, and moreover it chanced to him to become blind by reason of the following accident. When the river had come down in flood, rising to a height of eighteen cubits, higher than ever before that time, and had gone over the fields, a wind fell upon it, and the river became agitated by waves. And this king, they say, moved by presumptuous folly, took a spear and cast it into the middle of the eddies of the stream. And immediately upon this he had a disease of the eyes, and was by it made blind." For ten years, then, he was blind, and in the eleventh year there came to him an oracle from the city of Buto, saying that the time of his punishment had expired, and that he should see again if he washed his eyes with the water of a woman who had accompanied with her own husband only, and had not had knowledge of other men. And first he made trial of his own wife, and then, as he continued blind, he went on to try all the women in turn, and when he had at last regained his sight, he gathered together all the women of whom he had made trial, excepting her by whose means he had regained his sight, to one city which now is named Erythrabalus. And having gathered them to this, he consumed them all by fire, as well as the city itself. But as for her whose means he had regained his sight, he had her himself to wife. Then, after he had escaped the malady of his eyes, he dedicated offerings at each one of the temples which were of renown, and especially, to mention only that which is most worthy of mention, he dedicated at the Temple of the Sun works which are worth seeing, namely two obelisks of stone, each of a single block, measuring in length a hundred cubits each one, and in breadth eight cubits. After him, they said there succeeded to the throne a man of Memphis, whose name in the tongue of the Hellenes was Proteus, for whom there is now a sacred enclosure at Memphis, very fair and well-ordered, lying on that side of the temple of Hephaestus which faces the north wind. Round about this enclosure dwell Phoenicians of Tyre, and this whole region is called the Camp of the Tyrians. Within the enclosure of Proteus there is a temple called the Temple of the, quote, Foreign Aphrodite, end quote, which temple I conjecture to be one of Helen, the daughter of Tyndareus, not only because I have heard the tale of how Helen dwelt with Proteus, but also especially because it is called by the name of the, quote, Foreign Aphrodite, end quote. For the other temples of Aphrodite which there are, have none of them the addition of the word, quote, foreign, end quote, to the name. And the priests told me, when I inquired, that the things concerning Helen happened thus. Alexander, having carried off Helen, was sailing away from Sparta to his own land. And when he came to the Aegean Sea, contrary winds drove him from his course to the Sea of Egypt. And after that, since the blasts did not cease to blow, he came to Egypt itself and in Egypt to that which is now named the Canobic mouth of the Nile, and to Terechii. Now, there was upon the shore, as still there is now, a temple of Heracles, in which if any man's slave take refuge and have the sacred marks set upon him, giving himself over to the god, it is not lawful to lay hands upon him. But this custom has continued still unchanged from the beginning down to my own time. 
Accordingly, the attendants of Alexander, having heard of the custom which existed about the temple, ran away from him, and sitting down as suppliants of the god, accused Alexander, because they desired to do him harm, telling the whole tale how things were about Helen and about the wrong done to Menelaus. And this accusation they made not only to the priests, but also to the warden of this river mouth, whose name was Thonis. Thonis, then having heard their tale, sent forthwith a message to Proteus at Memphis, which said as follows, quote, There hath come a stranger, a Teucrian by race, who hath done in Hellas an unholy deed. For he hath deceived the wife of his own host, and is come hither, bringing with him this woman herself, and very much wealth, having been carried out of his way by winds to thy land. Shall we then allow him to sail out unharmed? Or shall we first take away from him that which he brought with him? End quote. In reply to this, Proteus sent back a messenger who said thus, quote, Seize this man, whosoever he may be, who has done impiety to his own host, and bring him away into my presence so that I may know what he will find to say. End quote. Hearing this, Thonis seized Alexander and detained his ships, and after that he brought the man himself up to Memphis, and with him Helen and the wealth he had, and also in addition to them the suppliants. So when all had been conveyed up thither, Proteus began to ask Alexander who he was and from whence he was voyaging, and he both recounted to him his descent and told him the name of his native land, and moreover related of his voyage from whence he was sailing. After this, Proteus asked him whence he had taken Helen, and when Alexander went astray in his account and did not speak the truth, those who had become suppliants convicted him of falsehood, relating in full the whole tale of the wrong done. At length, Proteus declared to them this sentence, saying, quote, Were it not that I counted a matter of great moment not to slay any of those strangers who, being driven from their course by winds, have come to my land hitherto? I should have taken vengeance on thee on behalf of the man of Hellas, seeing that thou, most base of men, having received from him hospitality, didst work against him in a most impious deed. For thou didst go in to the wife of thine own host, and even this was not enough for thee, for thou didst stir her up with desire, and hast gone away with her like a thief. Moreover, not even this by itself was enough for thee, but thou art come hither with plunder taken from the house of thy host. Now therefore depart, seeing that I have counted it of great moment not to be a slayer of strangers. This woman indeed and the wealth which thou hast I will not allow thee to carry away, but I shall keep them safe for the Helene who was thy host, until he come himself and desire to carry them off to his home. To thyself, however, and thy fellow voyagers, I proclaim that ye depart from your anchoring within three days, and go from my land to some other, and if not, that ye will be dealt with as enemies. This, the priest said, was the manner of Helen's coming to Proteus. And I suppose that Homer had also heard this story, but since it was not so suitable to the composition of his poem as the other which he followed, he dismissed it finally, making it clear at the same time that he was acquainted with that story also, and according to the manner in which he described the wanderings of Alexander in the Iliad, nor did he elsewhere retract that which he had said, of his course, wandering to various lands, and that he came, among other places, to Sidon in Phoenicia. Of this the poet has made mention in, quote, the prowess of Diomede, end quote, 
and the verses run thus, quote, There she had robes many-colored, the works of women of Sidon, those whom her son himself, the godlike of form Alexander, carried from Sidon what time the broad sea path he sailed over, bringing back Helene home, of a noble father begotten, end quote. And in the Odyssey also he has made mention of it in these verses. Quote, such had the daughter of Zeus, such drugs of exquisite cunning, good which to her the wife of Thon, Polydemna, had given, dwelling in Egypt, the land where the bountiful meadow produces drugs more than all lands else, many good being mixed, many evil. End quote. And thus too Menelaus says to Telemachus quote, Still the god stayed me in Egypt, to come back hither desiring stayed me from voyaging home, since sacrifice due I performed not." End quote. In these lines he makes it clear that he knew of the wanderings of Alexander to Egypt, for Syria borders upon Egypt, and the Phoenicians, of whom is Sidon, dwell in Syria. By these lines, and by this passage, it is also most clearly shown that the, quote, Cyprian epic, end quote, was not written by Homer, but by some other man, for in this it is said that on the third day after leaving Sparta, Alexander came to Ilion, bringing with him Helen, having had a, quote, gently blowing wind and a smooth sea, end quote, whereas in the Iliad it says he wandered from his course when he brought her. Let us now leave Homer and the, quote, Cyprian epic, end quote. But this I will say, namely that I asked the priests whether it is but an idle tale which the Hellenes tell of that which they say happened about Ilion. And they answered me thus, saying that they had their knowledge by inquiries from Menelaus himself. After the rape of Helen there came indeed, they said, to the Teucrian land a large army of Hellenes to help Menelaus. And when the army had come out of the ships to land, and had pitched its camp there, they sent messengers to Ilion, with whom went also Menelaus himself. And when these entered within the wall, they demanded back Helen and the wealth which Alexander had stolen from Menelaus, and had taken away. And moreover, they demanded satisfaction for the wrongs done. And the Teucrians told the same tale then and afterwards, both with and without oath, namely that in deed and in truth they had not Helen nor the wealth for which demand was made, but that both were in Egypt, and that they could not justly be compelled to give satisfaction for that which Proteus the king of Egypt had. The Hellenes, however, thought they were being mocked by them and besieged the city, until at last they took it. And when they had taken the wall and did not find Helen, but heard the same tale as before, then they believed the former tale and sent Menelaus himself to Proteus. And Menelaus, having come to Egypt and having sailed up to Memphis, told the truth of these matters, and not only found great entertainment, but also received Helen unhurt and all his own wealth besides. Then, however, after he had been thus dealt with, Menelaus showed himself ungrateful to the Egyptians, for when he set forth to sail away, contrary winds detained him, and as this condition of things lasted long, he devised an impious deed, for he took two children of natives and made sacrifice of them. After this, when it was known that he had done so, he became abhorred, and being pursued he escaped and got away in his ships to Libya. But whether he went besides after this, the Egyptians were not able to tell. Of these things they said they found out part by inquiries, and the rest, namely that which happened in their own land, 
they related from sure and certain knowledge. Thus the priests of the Egyptians told me, and I myself also agree with the story which was told of Helen, adding this consideration, namely that if Helen had been an Ilian, she would have been given up to the Hellenes, whether Alexander consented or no. For Priam assuredly was not so mad, nor yet the others of his house, that they were desirous to run risk of ruin for themselves and their children and their city, in order that Alexander might have Helen as his wife. And even supposing that during the first part of the time they had been so inclined, yet when many others of the Trojans besides were losing their lives as often as they fought with the Hellenes, and of the sons of Priam himself, always two or three or even more were slain when a battle took place, if one may trust it all to the epic poets. When, I say, things were coming thus to pass, I consider that even if Priam himself had had Helen as his wife, he would have given her back to the Achaeans, if at least by doing so he might be freed from the evils which oppressed him. Nor even was the kingdom coming to Alexander next, so that when Priam was old, the government was in his hands. But Hector, who was both older and more of a man than he, would certainly have received it after the death of Priam. And him it behooved not to allow his brother to go on with this wrongdoing, considering that great evils were coming to pass on his account, both to himself privately and in general to the other Trojans. In truth, however, they lacked the power to give Helen back, and the Hellenes did not believe them, though they spoke the truth, because, as I declare my opinion, the divine power was purposing to cause them utterly to perish, and so make it evident to men that for great wrongs, great also are the chastisements which come from the gods. And thus have I delivered my opinion concerning these matters. After Proteus, they told me, Rampsinitus received in succession the kingdom, who left as a memorial of himself that gateway to the temple of Hephaestus, which is turned towards the west. And in front of the gateway he set up two statues, in height five and twenty cubits, of which the one which stands on the north side is called by the Egyptians summer, and the one on the south side winter. And to that one, which they call summer, they do reverence and make offerings, while to the other, which is called winter, they do the opposite of these things. This king, they said, got great wealth in silver, which none of the kings born after him could surpass or even come near to. And wishing to store his wealth in safety, he caused to be built a chamber of stone. One of the walls whereof was towards the outside of his palace. And the builder of this, having a design against it, contrived as follows. That is, he disposed one of the stones in such a manner that it could be taken out easily from the wall, either by two men or even by one. So when the chamber was finished, the king stored his money in it, and after some time the builder, being near the end of his life, called to him his sons, for he had two. And to them he related how he had contrived in building the treasury of the king, and all in forethought for them, that they might have ample means of living. And when he had clearly set forth to them everything concerning the taking out of the stone, he gave them the measurements, saying that if they paid heed in this matter, they would be stewards of the king's treasury. So he ended his life, and his sons made no long delay in setting to work, but went to the palace by night, and having found the stone in the wall of the chamber, they dealt with it easily, and carried forth for themselves great quantity of the wealth within. 
and the king happening to open the chamber he marveled when he saw the vessels falling short of a full amount and he did not know on whom he should lay the blame since the seals were unbroken and the chamber had been closed shut but when upon opening the chamber a second and a third time the money was each time seen to be diminished for the thieves did not slacken in their assault upon it he did as follows having ordered traps to be made he set these round about the vessels in which the money was and when the thieves had come as at former times and one of them had entered then so soon as he came near to one of the vessels he was straightway caught in the trap and when he perceived in what evil case he was straightway calling his brother he showed him what the matter was and bade him enter as quickly as possible and cut off his head for fear lest being seen and known he might bring about the destruction of his brother also and to the other it seemed he spoke well and he was persuaded and did so and fitting the stone into its place he departed home bearing with him the head of his brother now when it became day the king entered into the chamber and was very greatly amazed seeing the body of the thief held in the trap without his head and the chamber unbroken with no way to come in by or go out and being at a loss he hung up the dead body of the thief upon the wall and set guards there with the charge that if they saw any one weeping or bewailing himself to seize him and bring him before the king and when the dead body had been hung up the mother was greatly grieved and speaking with the son who survived she enjoined him in whatever way he could to contrive means by which he might take down and bring home the body of his brother and if he should neglect to do this she earnestly threatened that she would go and give information to the king that he had the money so as the mother dealt hardly with the surviving son and he though saying many things to her did not persuade her he contrived for his purpose a device as follows providing himself with asses he filled some skins with wine and laid them upon the asses and after that he drove them along and when he came opposite to those who were guarding the corpse hung up he drew towards him two or three of the necks of the skins and loosened the cords with which they were tied then when the wine was running out he began to beat his head and cry out loudly as if he did not know to which of the asses he should first turn and when the guards saw the wine flowing out in streams they ran together to the road with drinking vessels in their hands and collected the wine that was poured out counting it so much gain and he abused them all violently making as if he were angry but when the guards tried to appease him after a time he feigned to be pacified and to abate his anger and at length he drove his asses out of the road and began to set their loads right then more talk arose among them and one or two of them made jests at him and brought him to laugh with them and in the end he made them a present of one of the skins in addition to what they had upon that they lie down there without any more ado being minded to drink and they took him into their company and invited him to remain with them and join them in drinking so he as may be supposed was persuaded and stayed then as they in their drinking bade him welcome in a friendly manner he made a present to them also of another of the skins and so at length having drunk liberally the guards became completely intoxicated and being overcome by sleep they went to bed on the spot where they had been drinking he then as it was now far on in the night 
first took down the body of his brother, and then, in mockery, shaved the right cheeks of all the guards. And after that he put the dead body upon the asses, and drove them away home, having accomplished that which was enjoined him by his mother. Upon this the king, when it was reported to him that the dead body of the thief had been stolen away, displayed great anger, and desiring by all means that it should be found out who it might be who devised these things, did this. So at least they said, but I do not believe the account. He caused his own daughter to sit in the stews, and enjoined her to receive all equally, before having commerce with any one to compel him to tell her what was the most cunning and what was the most unholy deed which had been done by him in all his lifetime. And whosoever should relate that which had happened about the thief, him she must seize and not let him go out. Then, as she was doing that which was enjoined by her father, the thief, hearing for what purpose this was done, and having a desire to get the better of the king in resource, did thus. From the body of one lately dead, he cut off the arm at the shoulder, and went with it under his mantle, and having gone to the daughter of the king, and being asked that which the others also were asked, he related that he had done the most unholy deed when he cut off the head of his brother, who had been caught in a trap in the king's treasure chamber, and the most cunning deed in that he made drunk the guards and took down the dead body of his brother hanging up. And she, when she heard it, tried to take hold of him, but the thief held out to her in the darkness the arm of the corpse, which she grasped and held, thinking that she was holding the arm of the man himself. But the thief left it in her hands and departed escaping through the door. Now when this also was reported to the king, he was at first amazed at the ready invention and daring of the fellow. And then afterwards he set round to all the cities and made proclamation granting a free pardon to the thief, and also promising a great reward if he would come into his presence. The thief accordingly, trusting to the proclamation, came to the king, and Rampsinitus greatly marveled at him, and gave him this daughter of his to wife, counting him the most knowing of all men. For as the Egyptians were distinguished from all other men, so was he from the other Egyptians. End section 7